0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: Boy, it is so great to see the Cal Campus look like a carnival today. It's wonderful weather, and this room uh, couldn't be more packed, and uh, I'm just thrilled to see the turnout. Thanks so much for coming. Robert Reich, what do you say? There is so much to say. I'm going to try to be brief, however, because I want to get to Bob. Uh, He served in three presidential administrations, uh, most recently in President Clinton's administration as Secretary of Labor. He's currently, and I am proud to say currently, uh, Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy here at Cal. He's an accomplished public servant, an extraordinary public intellectual, and a great educator. Public servant. In 2008, Time Magazine named him one of the 10 best cabinet members of the century. Public intellectual, and this comes from an interesting source. In 2008, the Wall Street Journal placed him sixth on its list of the most influential business thinkers. I'm sure they weren't totally thrilled with that. Educator and researcher, he's published 13 books, The Work of Nations, Supercapitalism, Aftershock, The Next Economy in America's Future, and most recently, Beyond Outrage, a digital book, which he can't sign for you, (laughs) because it's a digital book. Uh, He teaches wealth and poverty to over 700 undergraduates every year at Berkeley, and he teaches leadership to our Masters of Public Policy students. Robert Reich does it all. Public servant public intellectual, and educator. Please welcome him to our Cal Day lecture, Political Civility Should Not Be an Oxymoron. Bob Rice.
0: Henry is uh, one of the most effective educational leaders I have ever had the privilege of working with, besides being a great scholar and also a great teacher in his own right. And we are privileged at the Goldman School and at Berkeley to have somebody of Henry's caliber in the position he is now in. Uh, And uh, Henry has to rush off uh, to do work that will preserve and protect and enlarge our faculty. So, Henry, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm c- concerned about some of you who may not be all that comfortable. Uh, there are two empty chairs right here. Orchestra, front row. We'll, we'll start the bidding at $1,000. $1,000, gone, great. That's really a very generous of you. I want to thank uh, particularly the class of 1968, for sponsoring not only this forum, but also the Center on Civility, Public Engagement. Uh, how many of you from the class of 68 here? <laughs> A truly great class. <laughs> and I also want to thank uh, Lynn Serda Price, and uh, you know, the Goldman School has not only the, one of the best deans and one of the best faculties, but also one of the best staff and really, really talented people. Lynn, could you stand up, please? Lynn is already standing up. Thank you, Lynn. Political civility should not be an oxymoron. You know, I, this morning, I was uh, checking my emails, as I sometimes do in the morning, And uh, this morning it was sort of uh, I was thinking about what I was going to say today, and I was trying to plot out that, but I checked my emails, and I had an unusual number of emails saying, essentially, Rice, you're a communist. <laughs> now, I get this all the time, but I... Or, and, and also, you're a secret admirer of Karl Marx, aren't you? <laughs> Mixed in with expletives. Now, I get this pretty regularly, but I got 150 of them this morning. So I thought, you know, to have 150 all at once saying essentially the same thing felt a little bit odd. Somebody must be stirring things up a little bit. And so, you know, the wonderful thing about the Internet is you can trace back pretty easily where things come from. And lo and behold, last night, Bill (laughs) O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly on Fox News was talking, having a discussion with Lou Dobbs, who used to be be a fairly reasonable man, and and I I just, I found a little clip, and I I clicked on it, and it starts out, and uh, Bill O'Reilly said, uh, that Robert Reich, uh, you know Robert Reich, and Lou Dobbs said yes, and Bill O'Reilly said, "Uh, he's a communist, isn't he, (laughs) and a secret admirer of Karl Marx. And Lou Dobbs shrugs his shoulders and said, Communists, Socialists. (laughs) And then they go on to play a clip of me talking to John Stewart on Wednesday night on The Daily Show. Uh, And in that clip, I simply say to John Stewart, uh, you know, because corporations are now, particularly the large corporations, they are global, we can't necessarily rely on corporate lobbying to ensure that we as a nation get the proper degree of public investment in infrastructure and education and all of the other things we need because a lot of corporations can do just fine uh, even regardless of what happens in the United States. And then they went on to discuss that a little bit and they they concluded I was a communist. (laughs) And that was the end of the four- or five-minute interval. Now, it's perfectly fine. I don't mind whatever people want to call me. They've called me much, much worse. I was always very short for my age. <laughs> so I have a very thick skin. and I've been in government. I've been in three different administrations, and I've been Secretary of Labor, and I've, uh, I've even run for office. I've run for governor of the state of Massachusetts. That's when I lived in Massachusetts. See, it's awkward to live here and run for governor of Massachusetts. <laughs> And, uh, but I, so I'm used to uh, a kind of political nastiness, but there is more of it now, by my own measure, but also by a lot of other measures. If you look at the ads that are being run, run by and sponsored by super PACs, if you look at even the Republican presidential primary, if you look and hear the media, particularly yellow radio and also not just Fox News, but sometimes, in fact quite often I am on other shows, uh, I don't do Fox News, they just don't invite me for some reason. I don't. No, I would be perfectly happy to. In fact, if you see or hear from Bill O'Reilly, tell him, I would like a chance to talk to him and say, you know, argue a little bit about my communist leanings. <laughs> but I appear on other, and other shows, there is, a lot, there is also a lot of anger. And sometimes there's a debate, but when there is a debate, the debate tends to, well, let me give you an example. Uh, not that long ago, I was debating a conservative on a national broadcast, on a, on a television show. I thought actually we were being very, very civil. And he was a professor, is a professor, and uh, had a lot of interesting things to say. And I, I was trying to agree with him, and he was trying to agree with me. But we were, And we were making a, a kind of an unusual degree of headway in terms of pre- being precise about where the argument really was. And then um, the commercial, they, we kind of, they paused for a commercial, and in my ear, I heard the producer say, Be angrier. I said, I don't want to be angrier. I think we're actually making, uh, unusually, we're making some real progress. And I think it's good for the viewers to hear kind of a civil debate. Uh, And she said, no, 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 you misunderstood me. You have to be angrier. I said, why? And she said, because you have millions of people who are surfing through their television channels, 100 or 200 channels. And they're only going to stop when they have a real gladiator contest. And so you've got to be angrier. And she said, we only have about 10 seconds, so be angry. I said, I don't want to be angry. She said, you have to be. And I'm afraid at that moment, I'd lost my temper. <laughs> so the, the question that I want to explore with you is where is all of this coming from? Why has a political discourse brought broadly conceived, not just between and among politicians, but also with regard to public issues on our airwaves, become so nasty. What's going on? What's the underlying phenomenon here? I mean, it's not, it's not the first time we've had conflict in this country. We've had, I mean, you from the class of 1968. I actually also, I graduated in 1968 as well. Did you know that? Not from Berkeley, I'm sad to say but from another a small college up in New Hampshire that has the color green as its major color. On the New Hampshire, you know, right on the border of Dartmouth. Uh, but Dartmouth, when I went there, was a... You know, it, there were no women, and also it was very, very isolated. The interstate highway system had not been created, so it was really going to a monastery in Siberia. That's what it... It was a wonderful place, but it was a monastic Siberian experience. Uh, But when I graduated in 1968, I remember the the uh, the speaker from my class uh, calling for the entire class to follow him immediately after graduation to Canada. Now for those of you who don't really know history or don't know what happened in 1968, the reason he was asking us all to follow him to Canada was not simply because he liked Canada. It was because he and his draft board were in a little bit of a riff, a little bit of a a kind of an unpleasant relationship, as were many of us, and we were all worried that we were going to be drafted into a very unpopular war. Uh, I raise that only to remind you that conflict is not it's not as if we are now in a kind of conflict we've, we've never been. There had been big, big conflicts. In fact, when he said that, that speaker for my class in 1968, a fist fight, I looked around me, and there were fist fights. Not among my classmates, but among the parents of my classmates. <laughs> uh, I did not go to Canada, but that summer I came for the first time to Berkeley on a job, I was working, uh, at that time I wanted to be an architect, and I well, got a job as a research assistant to a professor of architecture here at Berkeley, named, uh, you probably don't remember, Sim van der Rijn. Does anybody know him? Do you know Sim? Yeah, you know, Sim was one of the pioneers of green architecture. But I knew nothing about Berkeley, and I remember in my little Volkswagen Bug, my iconic Volkswagen that I had d- driven all the way across America. I came coming up University Avenue for the first time in my life, and kind of taking in the aroma, the, <laughs> the intoxicating, totally intoxicating. I mean, it was a, it was kind of, it was a eucalyptus mixed with marijuana and tear gas it was it was absolutely I mean I just I thought well I have come to Nirvana and I uh, but then I got a notice from my draft board that I had to report for induction and they said the nearest induction center was Oakland so I went went down to the Oakland induction center and I thought well there's not a problem here because I know I am too short I've read the regulations uh, and there's no way, but uh, on that particular day, the examining sergeant, who was sitting there, saw me coming down the h- corridor, and his eyes lit up brightly. And he said, great! And I said, what? He said, we've been on the lookout for tunnel rats. <laughs> <laughs> to flush the VC out with hand grenades from under the rice paddies. He said, you're just perfect. And I saw my entire life. And so we went and, you know, we went up to the height thing and I thought, oh God, and, he, and the thing came down on my head and he put his arm and then his hand on my shoulder. He said, I'm sorry, son. I wasn't sure whether he was sorry I was going to be killed in Vietnam or he was sorry that I couldn't go. He said, you're just an inch and a half too short. (laughs) But those were very, very harrowing times. And before that, the civil rights movement. That was not a time that was easy. There were sharp conflicts in America. And if you go back before that, the communist witch hunts of the 1950s. I mean, a lot of people calling each other communists. And that was not an easy time in American history. I mean, go back years before that. I mean, the Civil War. That was not exactly a time of... But why is it? Why is it that we are seeing such a unique kind of political incivility right now? And I want to define it for you. Because it's not just nastiness. It's also a kind of trench warfare of the First World War variety in which neither side moves. There is no dialogue. There is no discussion. There is no persuadability. Both sides are locked in. It is complete paralysis. In fact, there is no real public debate at all. Whatever the issue, women's reproductive rights, climate change, widening inequality, the budget deficit, you name it, there's no dialogue. It's not only incivility, but it's the worst kind of incivility. It's incivility without debate. You see, all of the previous times of sharp conflict that I recall in My memory, but also historically going back that I've read about and researched, all of those times, excuse me, of incivility were marked by vigorous, vigorous public debate. I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Think about democratic deliberation, democratic debate as part of the democratic process. Even when we are locked into, excuse me again, Even when we are locked into bitter struggles, we at least debate. And now, if you think we're debating, you are wrong. Democrats in Congress do not even talk with Republicans. Republicans in Congress don't even deign to be seen, let alone talk with Democrats. There is no debate in our media, as I just said, What's going on? Why have we stopped debating? Well, let me give you three ideas. There are three things that I think are really underlying, not just the nastiness, but the failure to really debate. And I think they are fairly unique to this time and this space. And then I'm going to go on and tell you how I think we're going to get out of it. And then I want to open it up to your questions and comments, and we'll have a good time talking about it number one never before in american history or in the history i dare say of most places that i've ever heard of in civilization has it been so easy to only talk with or only get information from people who agree with you and to completely cut out people who and ideas with which you disagree. Not only do we have Fox News versus MSNBC, we've got so many media outlets that cater exactly to what you want to hear, to your preconceptions and tell you nothing about what anybody else thinks or believes except for ad hominem attacks that all that happens is you are confirmed in your preconceived notions and biases. On top of that, we have more and more geographic divisions, so that it is likely that in your particular community, in your particular town, in your particular region, in your particular state, you are also only coming across, or mostly coming across, people who agree with you. I went to, uh, in fact, I did a a public debate about two weeks ago in Richmond, Virginia, with Alan Simpson, former Senator Alan Simpson. It was a public debate. It was a speaker series, and they put us both there. And Alan is a very dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, We, uh, I don't really understand why, we we don't see eye to eye. He's six foot seven. We can't physically see eye to eye. (laughs) And he's a, uh, he, he, he used to be a very conservative Republican. He still is. It's just the rest of the party moved to his right. And so he's now considered to be a moderate Republican. Uh, but we share... Uh, we like humor. We both, we both like to joke around. And we like humor, and we've always enjoyed each other's company. And so we did this debate. And uh, before the debate, he said, uh, uh, Reich, watch yourself. I said, why? He said, they're all Republicans, and they hate you. I said... <laughs> I said, Alan, don't worry about it, and he was right. But, but we used, we did use humor, and we did, uh, did a, 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 we also appeared at the Panetta Institute. Uh, and I've debated Charles Krauthammer also in, uh, in those venues in Richmond and elsewhere. I mean, there have been debates, but you see they are debates to audiences that already pretty much agree with one side. They're not real. There's kind of staged debates. We can separate and have separated geographically. We have our own media. And you know what we don't have any longer? I mean, think back, those of you who remember the 1950s, 60s, 1970s, early 1970s. We don't have the arbiters. Now, some people would call them the establishment, but I think that is kind of a pejorative. We don't have people like Edward R. Murrow, who used to be on CBS. When Edward R. Murrow finally turned the tables on Joseph McCarthy. That was the end of Joseph McCarthy because Edward R. Murrow, the CBS newsman, showed the country who Joe McCarthy really was and what Joseph McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy, was doing. Another example. Some of you may remember Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, again, was the embodiment of, in a sense, the establishment, but also the arbiter, the sense that we all had a kind of fundamental trust, and the word trust is very important here. We fundamentally trusted Uncle Walter, we called him affectionately, and so that night, I remember the night when I was watching the news and Walter Cronkite said, it is time to get out of Vietnam. And I knew that when he said that, it was pretty late in the game, but when he said that, that was the end of the Vietnam War. We had individuals like that, but we also had forums around those individuals or contiguous with those individuals. So it was possible for us to debate in ways we do not debate any longer. Now here is something else. If you're going to have a debate about public policy, you also at least have to have an agreement about the public good. That is the final ends, the final goals. You don't have to agree on how you get there. In fact, some of the most severe disagreements we've had are over means toward ends. They're not over the ends, but you have to at least have some degree, some consensus about what the ends actually are. Some degree of social, uh, we call it social solidarity, some commonality, so that you can appeal to people's common sense of we're all in this together. Now in the 1950s and even 1960s, as we went through the civil rights era and the 1970s, after we tried to heal from Vietnam, you know what we did have? We still had the memory, the living memory, in most people's minds of World War II and also, in many people's minds, of the Great Depression. What was there about the Great Depression and World War II? They were common experiences that generated in the public a strong sense of commonality, of social solidarity, of communitarian values. We were all in this together. We weren't a bunch of individuals. We had obligations to one another as members of the same society. You see how much easier it is to have a public debate When you at least remember, recall, have the very sharp, distinct, recent memory of having all been in it together, you're still, to some extent, all in it together. So even though you may disagree with Joe McCarthy, or even though you may be threatened by the civil rights movements and Martin Luther King, and even though the lights may be going out, you still have trust that we're all fundamentally trying, groping our way toward some common set of values. But maybe, just maybe, we are losing that sense of commonality. Maybe, just maybe, because of globalization, because we are not necessarily convinced that the rising tide lifts all boats, Maybe, just maybe, we're losing the sense that we're all in it together. I was down at Google about three months ago and I was talking to some executives there and I was interested in their attitude toward the American workforce and also education. And finally, after the end of about... 30 or 40 minutes of discussion where I was trying to find out why, in fact, in the back of my mind was a kind of annoying question that's been there in the back of my mind for quite some time. I mean, California has Facebook and Google and Apple and the entire venture capital community of America, and it also has the entertainment capital of America, and the lights just went on when I talked about all those things. (laughs) I mean, California has the cutting edge, the most successful businesses, corporations, uh, parts of the financial community, uh, entertainment community, which is the cutting edge of our exports. California is where it's at, and yet, for some reason, all of these companies, all of these industries, all of these sectors that are cutting edge have allowed the educational, public educational system in California to go to hell. And I said to... And I said to the head of, uh, of, not the head, but but number two or three person at Google, I said, well, what, aren't, aren't you, I mean, isn't there a kind of cognitive dissonance here? Aren't you dependent on California? I mean, you're all here. Why are you all here? Facebook just came out here. You're all here because there's something about the human capital here in California that means that you want to be here, and so aren't you interested in the public educational system? And he looked at me for a long instant, and then he finally said... But we can get the talent we need all over the world. You see, that's a fundamentally different proposition than we're all in this together as members of the same society dependent on one another. That's a fundamentally different proposition from the rising tide lifts all boats and we are all experiencing something like a depression or a World War II or whatever it is together because we are inevitably connected. Our fates are connected. No, there's something new happening. And I pick this up also around the country when I talk to people about immigration it is not that we haven't had immigration waves before. We certainly did. In the, in, the, in the last century, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, we had an immigration wave that was comparable in terms of the percentage of the total population that were new immigrants. But somehow, the combination of globalization and immigration, documented and undocumented, is making people feel extremely... Anxious about the meaning of our society and the willingness to sacrifice. Number three. Now, again, number one is the lack of arbiters and forums, the ease by which we can only talk and and get information from people who who agree with us and completely disregard people who disagree with us. And geographically, we can separate. The second is the lack of a common sense of we're all in it together because we don't have that kind of recent history and we are much more globalized. But there is also number three operating For 30 years now, the typical American has seen his or her wage and benefit adjusted for inflation go absolutely nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) But the economy, uh, over the last 30 years, the US economy is twice as large as it was 30 years ago. what we have is a very unusual economic phenomenon. We have not seen this before in our history. We saw it a little bit in the 1920s, but we don't have this long a period of time in which the economy has grown fairly steadily. There have been ups and downs, but fairly steadily and doubled its size, and yet the typical worker has gone absolutely nowhere. Where have all the resources gone? Where is all the money gone? I don't want to again engage in any nefarious blame because it's not a matter of blame, it's how the system is organized, but the fact of the matter is that most of the gains have gone to the very top. What we know from the research of some wonderful economists who have done very, very important research that had not been done before. Emmanuel Sayes, here at University of California, Berkeley, and his colleague Thomas Piketty, they looked at tax returns, going back to 1913, and they have actually seen the pattern that some of us were witnessing and writing about, but we didn't have all the data that they have uncovered, and they show undoubtedly. Indubitably, indubitably, that there were two years in the last hundred where the top 1%, the richest 1% were taking home 23.5% of total national income. And those years were, wait for it, 1928 and 2007. It's not, in my view, a coincidence that in the years following those two years, the economy fell off a cliff. Why? Because it is impossible for the vast middle class to sustain the purchasing power necessary to keep the economy going without going deeper and deeper into debt, and that is not sustainable until finally there is a debt bubble that explodes, and then you have inadequate demand. And that's what happened in 1929, 1930, 31, and so on. And that's what happened beginning in 2008. And we're still living with it. But you see, my point is that it has a long, long tail. It actually starts in 1981, 82. That's when median wages start flattening. Now when you have so many Americans who are not only experiencing flat wages and benefits who are actually losing benefits, but they are also losing economic security because the old jobs were fairly secure jobs, the new jobs are not secure at all. A free floating focus group of any group of Americans, and I've done a lot of these kinds of focus groups, will have story after story after story of how people have been laid off without any warning how they have bills to be paid, how their children or their relatives suddenly are near poverty, or they have a medical bill that they can't pay because they no longer have medical insurance for their employer. You know all of these things. My point is that all of this has been coming to a head when so many people are so frightened and angry and anxious and frustrated. That, my friends, is fodder- for demagogues on the right or the left demagogues who want to scapegoat who want to use the politics of resentment to solidify their own places and so what do they do they blame, they blame immigrants they blame the poor some blame the rich they blame the French They blame foreigners, they blame public employees, they blame unions, the blame game, the ad hominem attack, people looking for easy answers to why they are getting nowhere. They have been playing the game as they thought it should be played, but they are getting nowhere. In fact, many of them are sinking they are worried, they are anxious, they want to blame someone, that is also operating. You put all that together and you find not only a politics of nastiness but also an unwillingness and inability to debate. Now, I promised you that I would talk about where we're going and I inferred implied that I would be upbeat because your faces are so downbeat that I've got to be upbeat. <laughs> I am upbeat. I am, I'm an idealist. I, I say to my students, a lot of my students here at Berkeley, I teach a lot of them and they are wonderful. This is the best public university in America by any <clears> standard, <throat> if not the world. And even though fees and tuitions are skyrocketing, And even though many of you as citizens feel that you are paying taxes that are supporting the University of California, and so you say to yourself, well, why should I as an alum also pay on top of that? Well, the fact of the matter is only 11% of the budget of this university is coming from your taxes, and so we are very dependent upon you. But this is a wonderful place, a wonderful place. And I say to my students over and over again, how do you feel about taking positions of leadership in society? How do you feel about the quality of public debate? And what do you think about American politics? And what I get back from them is cynicism. And I say to them if you're cynical between the ages of 18 and 22, God help you by the time you get to be my age. But I understand the cynicism. I understand the cynicism about politics. Politics, uh, some believe, comes from the Greek root poly, meaning many, and ticks, small blood-sucking insects. (laughs) But you see, if you become cynical about the capacity of us to join together and improve our society then we are in really very difficult place. We can't move forward at all. So, judging from history, my upbeat message to them and to you is the following. One of the great gifts of American society to Americans is pragmatism. That is. When the going gets very tough, and this has happened again and again, you look at what happened at the turn of the last century, the progressive era, starting in 1900, 1901, with Teddy Roosevelt, Republican president, and then followed by Woodrow Wilson. Or you look at what happened after 1929, and you look at the struggle that we engaged in. Or you look at then... Uh, even our efforts in the 1960s with civil rights and voting rights and we continued to fight for women's rights and the rights of the disabled and gay rights and we have not stopped. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and he said to me, well, what do you think is the most recent social accomplishment of this country that you did not expect to have happened 20 years ago? And I said, without really thinking about it, just came out, I was kind of surprised, smoking bans. I mean, when you think about it, honestly, think of the progress we have made. When I was Secretary of Labor, we came out with a rule, I tried to come up with a rule that would ban smoking in restaurants and in bars and public places, and you know, I almost got killed by the restaurant lobby and the bar lobby. I thought, that will never fly. I mean, it was like like banning (laughs) handguns. But somehow we get pragmatic when we understand the nature of a problem. We roll up our sleeves. We put ideology aside and we do what has to be done. And I look at what is happening now, not only in terms of widening inequality and the frustrations of so many Americans in terms of economic insecurity, but also the amount of money that is now polluting our democracy, taking over our democracy. And you know something? Nobody, regardless of what they say their ideology is or their political persuasion or what, whether they listen to Fox News or not or Bill O'Reilly, nobody likes it. And we are getting to a point, a tipping point on these issues where I am absolutely sure once again we will roll up our sleeves and do what has to be done and finally and finally in the process of doing that I think we will because every time we've done that before we discover something about ourselves we will rediscover that we are really, once again, all parts of the same society with obligations to one another. We are all in the same boat. We all do sink or swim together. And we will have a sense that political incivility is hurting us. The public does not like the ugliness of politics. The public does not like the attacks, the ad hominem, People will be heard. We've done it before, and we will do it again. Thank you. Thank you. Now. Uh, we've got about uh, 15 or possibly 20 minutes for your questions. And we've got some, uh, some of these things, uh, microphones going around to uh, so we can capture what you have to say. And I look forward to your questions. So, here goes. Uh, the microphones, do you want to be the lead because, or do you want me to point out people? I'll point out people. All right. Well, there's somebody right here in the front row. And then we'll follow with somebody right here. One thing that you talked about, and talking about public education, here in California, you know, there was Prop 13. And since Prop 13 passed that was back in 1979, I believe, the money for the educational systems have plummeted. And so, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of Prop 13, but how that destroyed the public school systems and the education here. Uh, Well, I I am aware of Proposition 13, um, but I think what we need to do is ask ourselves why Proposition 13 passed, and why it's been so hard to do anything since then, and also what has happened to the state budget. Uh, Proposition 13, just like a similar measure in Massachusetts, Proposition 2 and and there were, in fact, tax revolts have roared across, thundered across America, beginning beginning in the late 1970s. Uh, Now, some people look at those tax revolts and say, those tax revolts reflect Americans being fed up with government. I look at those tax revolts and I see that they correspond with the beginnings. They start in the late 1970s, they extend through the 1980s and beyond. They correspond with a time when, for the first time in the entire post-war era, American median income started to flatten. Male wages started to go down. So it's not surprising in my mind that a lot of Americans said, I can't afford more taxes. I don't want to pay more taxes. The underlying problem was not necessarily government. The underlying problem was the expenditures even expenditures that people thought were good and important expenditures, like public schools, I can't do it any longer. And that is, it seems to me, a core issue. Now, what is the state of California spending money on? This year, I believe, for the first time, state expenditures for prisons are going to be equal or exceed state expenditures on higher education. Oh, they did it last year. Well, it seems to me that the people of California, now I'm one of us, have a responsibility to do everything we can to make sure that the burden of who pays taxes is equitable, that what we are paying for, in terms of priorities, makes sense, and also that it's being done as efficiently and well as possible without indulging in scapegoating. So Proposition 13 is a piece of the puzzle, but it's only one piece. Yes.
1: Hello. I don't know if I should apologize, but I enjoy... Go ahead, li-
0: apologize. Right. I enjoy
1: <laughs> listening to talk radio, okay? And as we all know, literally 90% of the stations across the country are conservative. In some places, in parts of the country, that's all there is. So my question to you is, why is that, and is there a fix for it?
0: <laughs> well, I, I would... I- I... Have a confession to you. I don't listen to talk radio. (laughs) Uh, But uh, here's what uh, people who do listen to talk radio, conservative talk radio, say to me when I ask them the same question. They say public radio, public broadcasting, public radio, uh, you know, the uh, national public radio, that's liberal. And while it not be, may not be as snarky as Rush Limbaugh or, or, the, or Yale Radio, conservative Yale Radio, it still puts out a point of view. Now, I don't know how to evaluate that. Uh, but what we're talking about today is not so much liberal conservative, it's the quality of the debate. And what worries me is the, is the, is the disintegration, the, uh, the inability of people to hear arguments. Uh, And so whether it's liberal radio or conservative radio, I say it's good radio if it really is providing people opportunities to think. Uh, In my classrooms at Berkeley, I tell students, the only way you're going to learn is if you debate with people who disagree with you. That's the essence of learning. And that's why in my classrooms, I play devil's advocate half the time. When I find out my students are going one way, I argue the other way. And if you have a conservative radio station that is really responsible in the sense that it's putting on a lot of arguments and saying, well, you know, people who disagree, they think this, but here's why they may be wrong. And if, that's, if there is a kind of a, an opening for dialogue, I say, great, that's fabulous. The problem is not conservative versus liberal. The problem is unthinking diatribe versus thoughtful discussion. Is the administration of the University of California on a collision course with the legislature. Make that an uncivil collegiate course with the legislature. I don't don't see any uh, uh, uncivil, you know, I may be not close enough to it, uh, but the legislature, and I've talked to legislators uh, in Sacramento about the budget issues, and we've uh, had extensive discussions. Uh, And they are in a real pickle. They're in very, very difficult straits uh... the university of california administration is also in terrible uh... financial straits uh... now the question really is is there a constructive agenda, constructive dialogue, are there good ideas out there, are people willing to try new things, Uh, and then also I would say, is there a constructive dialogue with the public, with citizens in California about what's going on, so citizens can be informed. There are at least two initiatives that will maybe be on the ballot uh, with regard to tax increases and public education, are people learning about it? Are they understanding the sides? Are we having a constructive, civil, deliberative debate over what we want in terms of public education in California? Mm, not much yet. Maybe we will. Um, yes.
1: So if we need a sense of common ground before people will
0: agree to a shared sacrifice. How do we get to that point? Because at this point, we, we don't have that common ground. Do we need to go through another depression before people will have this feeling that they actually can sacrifice? I, no. Uh, and please don't get me wrong. I don't think we need to go through a depression, and certainly we don't need to go through a world war. Uh, What interests me, you historians or you who might have a proclivity toward history, do me a favor. You will learn a lot if you spend a little time, maybe this summer, reading books about the progressive era in the United States. Starts in 1901. Read about Teddy Roosevelt. Read about Robert La Follette. Read about uh, uh, what happened at the state and the federal level between 1901 and, let's say, around 1918, end of the First World War, what you find is that professionals and academics and many civic leaders at all levels of society and many of the middle class and also political leaders came together and they said, essentially, this can't go on the pollution and undermining of our politics, machine politics at the local and state levels, the overwhelming gap between the rich and the poor that is widening to very scary degrees, the poverty in our cities, our inner cities, many of them immigrants, the lack of worker health and safety, the industrialization that we are seeing that is generating huge hardship for so many people, this can not go on. It's an issue of public morality. And people came together, Republicans, Democrats, civic leaders, they put ideology aside. That's the best example I know because it was not founded upon a war. It was not founded upon a depression. That sense of engagement and social solidarity that generated huge, huge numbers of very important. Kinds of uh, progressive, the you know the eight-hour, I, I mean the eight-hour work uh, work day, the forty-hour work week at the state level. Much of what was implemented during the depression nationally came out of the progressive era. At the state level, we also saw the beginning of a national income tax, progressive income tax, and we saw antitrust being used for the first time, breaking up big companies for the public interest. All of that without the promptings of a war or a depression. Very interesting, important era to understand because that is probably what we need again. Uh, Yes, somebody in the back. Somebody in the back, yes. And we have about uh, four minutes. So I know it's warm here and uncomfortable. And if if you're sitting in the aisle, your backside is getting is numbing, you're Uh, numb. It's building character. Uh, (laughs) um, You mentioned that we are in a different time where people, global companies are going to wherever labor is available cheapest and wherever qualifications are available. So in this age of lower transactional costs across nations, how will the middle class here even hope for a higher wage than whatever we could find elsewhere? Well, the way the middle class here hopes to do better is through, to be simple, you know, I've written books on this, so I'm going to try to simplify it in a 40 second response. This takes a certain degree of compression. (laughs) Uh, Public investments in education, public education, including early childhood education, critically. Important Public investments in infrastructure, public investments in basic research and development. All these kinds of things that actually enable people to become more productive. And because they are more productive, they can generate higher real wages in a global system. Germany has higher real wages, adjusted for inflation and adjusted purchasing power parity, parity, than we have in the United States right now. And Germany is competing as vigorously as we are competing globally. What's Germany's secret? Well, Germany is investing substantially and has in first-class, world-class infrastructure, in a terrific system of education, not only primary, secondary, and tertiary higher education, but also technical education for many of the kids who can't go on or don't want to go on to college. And another thing that I often hesitate to mention in mixed company, but I'm going to say it, Germany also has very powerful labor unions that are able to negotiate and bargain for a larger piece of the pie. Now, you put all that together, Germany is doing extremely well. Even though Europe is having a hard time right now, German growth over the last 15 years has been better on average than American growth. Its wages are higher. So, this is not impossible for us and we also did it in the first three decades after the Second World War but just to come full circle and I'll end on this note what was it that really got Bill O'Reilly's goat that I said to Jon Stewart what I said to Jon Stewart Wednesday night was that because of global corporations and their extraordinary political power it is very hard to get the kind of commitment to public investment that we need in this country. And that's why citizens, not global corporations, have to get together and assert Themselves as citizens, and that the Supreme Court's decision in in, in, uh, uh, Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission was not only absurd and grotesque, but the idea that a corporation is a citizen is, and a person is bizarre. I mean, I'll believe that corporations are people. I said to John Stewart, I'll believe that corporations are people when Texas executes a corporation. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly did not like that. <laughs> Neither did Lou Dobbs. So I'm a communist. Uh, on that upbeat note, thank you all.